Hello and welcome to the Spectator Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm joined on the bicentenary of the publication of Frankenstein by the poet and critic Fiona Sampson, whose new book is In Search of Mary Shelley. It's a new biographical attempt to get to the heart of the woman who wrote that extraordinary and lasting book. Fiona, it lives, it lives, is how you begin your book. (laughs) You start with the film version. Why is that? Do you feel that you have to get through that? Yes, that's exactly it. I feel like Frankenstein is a is a meme. And actually a meme to which for a long time I was rather resistant because I'm certainly not a horror geek. I know one should like schlock stuff and so on, but it doesn't really speak to me. But at the same time, I think Mary's Frankenstein, the actual Frankenstein, is fascinating and enduring. And kind of the schlock stuff is a homage to that. So I think that Frankenstein is an amazing book because it's just at that moment when we've entered modernity. I mean, really, the romantics are the first of the moderns, aren't they? They're the first to worry about what it is to be a human in a man-made environment. You know, Indeed, actually, what it is to be human, full stop, largely. And that sort of anxiety about progress versus overreaching is obviously something that speaks to us in the archetype of Dr Frankenstein and then obviously Mary creates this other archetype which is his creature and that speaks to a whole other set of anxieties which have to do with what makes us be a human. I'm certain that she wasn't trying to be systematic and run through a whole set of ideas. I'm sure that as with all sort of artistic making The work had its own, not just momentum, but it made her know more things than she knew. But, you know, the creature is extraordinary. There's a question of, is he one or is he multiple? Because he's, you know, he's a patchwork of bits of other people's bodies, of lots of bodies. Well, isn't that that a sort of slight invention of the films? No, no, that's the other way around. No, no, it's not that there is one creature that's brought, brought to life or sort of one, you know, body taken down from the gallows. It is very much, Frankenstein says... He's bemused by how ugly the creature is because he says, I chose every individual part because it was beautiful, but put them together and they're a motley. Yes, and no bolts, though. No bolts, absolutely no bolts. (laughs) And no electricity until 1832 edition. 1818, it's what in the 19th century they thought of as chemistry, i.e. maths plus alchemy, really. So the creature, he's several people rolled into one. He's a tabula rasa. You know, he's born benevolent but made malevolent by being rejected. So there's all that romantic stuff and around he, nature And then he sort nurture. of turns towards the end as well, doesn't he? I mean, he yes, has I mean, he has that great... Moral journey. Exactly, yes. <laughs> and that's the other thing, exactly, the morality, that he's a moral agent and he's treated as a human. He's not, it's not like it's a tiger cub, so you'd expect it to maul and kill children and so on. It's, it's this creature, she calls him a creature, but clearly she treats him as a human with political and moral responsibility and agency. Although Victor... You know, I mean, he, he's he's never given a name. He's always calling this creature, and he's always so you know foul fiend. Mm. And do you think that that's that's her kind of ironising the monster? I mean, because you know the, the portrayal of the monster is much more tender than his description anywhere yes. in the book. No, I know that's a real conundrum, isn't it? I mean, it is a book that waxes and wanes. I think it's really clever because I think your sympathies do move to and fro between the creature and Frankenstein, and then back to the creature. I mean, I think. The heart of it is that great 
or speech, but also kind of basal exposition by the creature when he 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 finds Frankenstein in the Mer de Glace and he says, look, this is how it's been for me and you've created me unlovable and without love I can't, and my life has no meaning and it's turned me into a moral monster and you've got to create a partner for me. But Frankenstein's, his equivocation, his... Sometimes he thinks, at moments he's swayed by the monster, he thinks, yes, I should create a, a mate for him. And then at other moments he thinks, oh, no, I shouldn't. And he knows he's responsible, and yet he, for example, does nothing to save the family friend, the girl who's oh. falsely accused of the murder of the first child. So I think Frankenstein is a really... He's almost... He's the, he's the us you know, who accompanies us through the kind of mor- the moral maze. Well, he gets called Adam at one point, doesn't he? I mean, exactly. That... Well, in the epigraph from, from yes. Milton, of Well, course. I mean, the epigraph from Milton is interesting because this whole business of I need a wife and the natural order of things that a man to have a wife goes straight back to Paradise Lost, doesn't it? Does it? Do you think that's a conscious kind of recapitulation of that speech in Milton? I think it probably is, yes. I mean, I think, well, I say, certainly think it's biblical, even though, of course, she was an atheist, so she would have been, it would have been a kind of critique, but she would have known mm. the story of Eden. And there's very much a sense when the creature's first, he's cast out in a way because Frankenstein sees what he's done and runs away, and the creature kind of comes to consciousness and he says, I grabbed up, I snatched up some clothes, but they weren't enough to cover me. And he's basically, he's been exposed like a Spartan child, all like Adam and Eve driven out of paradise. There he is, naked, uncovered. He, you know, unprotected. It is Edenic. But of course, then at the same time, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because it's about the natural order, but it's also this massive disruption in the natural order. It's unnatural to make a, yeah. to make a human. And the structure of the book mm. is, I think, people, you know, who sort of haven't read it or don't think, you know, realize it's really sort of artful, isn't it? I mean, it's this peculiar frame story. Yes, but that wasn't so unusual. I mean, well, one thing I also think we should remember about Frankenstein is that it was the only one of Mary's books which was published, because it was published anonymously, which was read as if it was by a man. But I think another thing is just how early it is. I mean, 1st of January, 1818. So stuff like the Brontes are still to come. I mean, their Annus Mirabilis is, you know, the beginning of the 1830s. And the novel is not yet the big, whopping, stable kind of symphonic 19th century form. It's still finding its way. If you think about it, even Wuthering Heights has a framing device. You know, it's the old housekeeper who tells the story. And it yeah, wasn't... Wuthering Heights is all concentric circles. Exactly. Yeah. And so the fact that Frankenstein is too, you know, it's told in letters by Walton, the, the Arctic explorer, which then takes us back to the voyage, the also hubristic voyage of Walton, the explorer, which, in case we haven't grasped that, you know, it's actually quite spelt out for us by Frankenstein, tells Walton, don't be like me, don't overreach. Yes, avoid ambition. Yes, the, avoid ambition, yeah. note to self. And then within that, because Walton comes across Frankenstein on the ice fields in pursuit of his creature, then there's a sort of, again, there's another backstory in which... Frankenstein then tells his story, which includes n- narrating verbatim what the creature said to him on the ice fields well, as a Conrad result. can do it, so can Well, exactly, it. yes. And, and you know, she was obviously grappling with form because the frame wasn't there to begin with. She had, as it was, she thought of as her ghost story instantly. But Walton comes in quite a lot later, some months later, and, you know, she writes about it in her journal. And it's interesting what she's reading at the time, too, because she suddenly starts reading novels which she wasn't doing before so she reads Lady Caroline Lamb's Romain and Claire about her affair with Byron she reads Don Quixote 
So she's she's really beginning to think about, oh, what makes a novel? How can I structure this? And I don't think she's thinking, how can I make it long enough to sell? I think she's thinking, what's the guarantee of credibility? And, you know, that anxiety about credibility that you know, novelists had at that very early stage, which is, of course, is why they put those framing devices, is... is, is like arduously there, isn't it? It sort of goes back to Chaucer a bit, doesn't yes. it? That minoctor, you know. Yes, you have a, yes. You know, I didn't, I didn't make this up. Yes. <laughs> Which obviously is an anxiety of the early novel. When we talk about the credibility of it, the fact it's published anonymously and therefore taken to this amount. I mean, you say in your introduction, you know, Mary Shelley was a, you know, is thought of as a one-hit wonder. Do you think that's an effect of the way Frankenstein was published, or is that an effect of the long shadow cast by her relationship with her husband? posterity have yeah i think it's several things i think you're right i think she's thought of as a one-hit wonder because frankenstein is an exceptional book with these extraordinarily useful actually archetypes that it created for us which are still in use today i think that it's also the case that the novels she wrote after that are no more readable for us today and indeed, sort of since the 70s, since, you know, the kind of recovery of women writers, canonical historical women writers, than, say, Walter Scott. I mean, it's hard to read Walter Scott. It's hard to read Mary's historical novels in the same way. Oh, indeed, it's hard to read Caleb Williams by, you know, Godwin, her father. Those novels have gone out of fashion. We find them too long and we find them too schematic and just, yeah, just indigestible. So I think it's a shame for her reputation, that it so happens that the novels she wrote after Frankenstein are the kind that we don't read today, because I think that at the time... It's like great... says they were more conventional. Yeah, they were exactly, they were much more conventional. And I think her great tragedy is that the Brontes and George Eliot were able to publish under male pseudonyms. But Mary, because of her relationship with Percy, was already known in all the publishing circles. She couldn't ever recoup anonymity or masculine pseudonymity so she was always read as a woman so her difficulty of pitching to publishers her critical reception was all modified by this all went through the prism of oh but she is a little woman what is the trajectory of her reputation between then and now i mean in the sense that to an extent she was sort of eclipsed by percy who was this sort of cult figure mm. and you know, well, took a great would... career yes. dying young and she did a lot to curate his reputation at the cost of her own yes I mean, I always think about, you know, Abraham Mendelssohn, who said, you know, before I used to be known as the son of my father, now I'm known as the father of my son, because his father was Moses Mendelssohn, his son was Felix Mendelssohn. And, and Mary, I think that what's great about Mary is that in terms of the calibre of her work and actually the body of work, how much she did, she managed not to be just the paste in the sandwich. But I think in terms of her reception, yes, you know, she, she was... And it's not only Percy, it's also her parents. She had very famous, indeed notorious parents. Her mother died, so there was no sort of... Well, her mother died very shortly after giving The mother died I mean, as a result. Which, which uh, for those, yes. the, the very maybe few listeners who don't know that her father was the great anarchist political philosopher William Godwin and her mother was, of course, the feminist Mary Wollstonecroft. Yes, um, exactly. How much did her own politics come to sort of mirror and or diverge from them because I know towards the end of her life she, stood, she sort of renounced a lot of her revolutionary friends yes. and well, had good personal reasons for doing so no I think actually her revolutionary friends renounced her I think that Mary was a radical but I think she was a radical but I think she was a radical partly by inheritance because one forgets perhaps how formative the beliefs that you grow up with in the household you grow up are and so things like free love which obviously is the radicalism for which she paid the highest price, 
which, you know, looking back, we think, oh, well, of course she was terribly brave and vulnerable, and of course she was going to get ostracised. But for her, she hadn't realised, she was in a kind of bubble. She was in a sense in a North London bubble, wasn't she? So there's that. So in that, there's a sort of inherited radicalism, so it's probably not very questioned. Then there's her radicalism not being sort of schematic. I mean, she, she, you know, she writes, when she's, later on, when she's accused by Trelawney of not, you know, he says, why didn't, why don't you write about um, women's rights? And why don't you write in what she calls the good cause? Why don't you write political philosophy? She, she agonises over it in her journal. And she says, well, she comes to the conclusion, she, I'm no good at argumentation. I'm not a political philosopher. So it's true that her thinking is not schematic. I mean, in Frankenstein, it's not schematic. It's symbolic, isn't it? Kind of clustered. I think then there's a, the fact that she'd realised by the time she was in her 40s what a high price she had paid personally for radicalism and that the price was too high. Well, it's one of the things you say, you know, her father's a great radical. But actually, when his disciple, Percy Bysshe Shelley, then married disciple with a young child, runs off with a 16-year-old daughter, his commitment to free love sort of slightly stops. <laughs> I mean, you know, he's... <laughs> yeah, he completely ostracises them, won't speak to them until the day of their wedding. Yeah. Yes, I mean, extraordinary. The intellectual case is that by then... For one reason or another, Godwin had modified his position. He no longer thought that tradition per se is empty. He thought that and should be overthrown by direct action. He was more interested in persuasion. That's his intellectual case. But obviously the personal case is that he himself had done some living by then. He had made the compromise and married Mary Wollstonecraft when they discovered she was pregnant with our Mary. He had married his second wife for the same reason. And he realised what the costs were going to be for Mary. And Percy well, was sort of slightly bankrolling him as well, wasn't he? Yes, there was this terrible kind of talk about a conflict of interest. That <laughs> <laughs> Percy had come to Godwin as a, an acolyte. He'd read Political Justice, which obviously said, you can be as free as you like, which clearly was something that appealed to Percy. And he'd said, he'd written a rather vehement letter to Godwin saying, you know, it'll be my honour to make sure that you're supported in, in your life. And Godwin who knew himself to be short of money, read this as, oh, here's a member of the aristocracy, an heir, who is going to bankroll me. And this was his Engels. Yes, exactly. And there was this terrible... Exactly, yes. And there was this terrible sort of haggling. And, of course, Percy was terrible with money. I mean, he didn't even sort out the money on their elopement, which is why their elopement was six weeks. It's a six-week tour. <laughs> Mary's first book It's not a kind of lifetime tour, which has been the intention. They've been going to Switzerland to settle. He constantly... Raises bonds against his father's death. Of course, his father actually lives till 1844. Outlives Percy by more than two decades. <laughs> I mean, you know, Mary only outlives her father-in-law by sort of seven years. I mean, he, he lives to be 90, yeah. extraordinary. So, so stupid thing to bet on. Apart from the fact it's in rather poor taste, isn't it, to bet against your father's death, one would say. So, yeah, so then suddenly Percy discovered he hadn't enough money. In any case, Percy seems to have been very spontaneous shall we say he liked the moment he liked moments of change he liked excitement and he clearly had a short attention span and I think he made promises and you know he made a commitment to Mary but he clearly before he died I think if he hadn't died I'm certain he would have left her I mean it was certainly you know because well my, my notes have have done Percy colon rotter I mean he was he behaved pretty badly even though he had sort of intellectual justifications for mm. his 
behaviour. I mean, there's, there's the, almost certainly he was having an affair at one point with Mary's half-sister, wasn't he, Claire? Uh, stepsister, yes. Claire Claremont, sorry, yes. stepsister, yeah. Yes, absolutely. No, I, I mean, I think that's an accurate diagnosis. I, I mean, the closer I got, the more I read, the more the evidence I read, the more kind of horrified I was by Percy. But at the same time, I thought he was a very recognisable type, you know, kind of spoilt, good-looking child man who has been indulged and always uses his art or this convenient ideal of <laughs> complete social revolution and free love to get what he wants. Oh, and let's not f- forget that... For much of their time together, you know, Mary was under the impression he was about to die from some mysterious, you know, wasting disease. Also, he did have those political ideas, but I, I feel that they sort of came after his desires rather than before. When I was, it's it's a, it's a irony that I came to Mary Shelley via Percy, but I did. I came to Mary through preparing an edition of Percy Bysshe Shelley's poetry, trying to find who the Percy was as a poet for a contemporary reader. And that sort of required me to make sense of whether he was a political writer and whether there were consistent themes and so on. And I sort of came to the conclusion that at his at its best, we could say that he was fascinated by change, by the moment of revolution. He's He's fascinated by a kind of... He's no Heraclitus, but a sense of the world is always in flux. Do you think that's a lyric impulse or a political one? Oh, it's a lyric impulse. And it's an emotional impulse. I don't believe it's a political one at all. I mean, you read their joint journal, their account during their elopement of going through France. This is 1814, the revolution, the terror, the war, and people are starving. And they actually acknowledge people are starving in the villages they pass. (laughs) And then they say, but they were so rude to us that I can't be sympathetic. I mean, this is no, these are not the words of a politically radicalised couple. Also, he clearly wasn't political in the sense that he might have thought that... It's a bit like the 1970s, really, actually, isn't it? That, you know, free love is a jolly convenient belief, but the idea that, nevertheless, that might then mean that you have to deal with the consequences, like you might support the children that are the result of your free love or whatever, or you might support the woman who has the children as a result of free love, that's not quite so necessary in the, in the ideal. And... You know, he he seems to have had no sense of how different it was for Mary than for him. For example, just before he dies, two days after Mary's had a nearly fatal miscarriage, he's writing to Edward Williams, who is the friend with whom he drowns, saying, oh, well, Mary doesn't understand me, whether this is through spending too much time together or domestic contiguity. You know, I don't know. In other words, he's preparing to leave. He's saying, you know, she, she can't understand me because, you know, we spent too much time together. And, of course, his, his abandoned first wife yes. went on to commit suicide. She did, exactly, yeah. because where are these women supposed to go? There's, there's no welfare state, there's no, there's no child support, there's no respectability, and respectability equals solvency. And, in fact, it turns out that Mary's stepmother, Mary Jane, had herself already... She had two children by different fathers, certainly wasn't married to the second one. He was a member of the Somerset Gentry, Sir John Lethbridge, and he got bored of her once he realised she was pregnant, called her an artful harpy, tried to cut her off without any support. And she was um, imprisoned for debt. She was in Ilchester prison for debt. So you can see why she went on to become indeed an artful harpy and try and snare the susceptible William Godwin and, and, bec- and leave herself back into respectability. But respectability and, and survival, it wasn't just a, about you know feeling emotionally rejected. It was deeply pragmatic. So was it? I mean, obviously, you know, there's terrible sort of tragedies and upheavals and 
rejections mm. in her life. Mm. Was her character one of great strength then? I think say? so. I think she was a real... Oh, she wasn't a plodder, and she wasn't entirely iron-willed, but she was... She was that kind of woman that we don't really have a, a picture of. We don't have a stereotype that that's to say, sort of commonsensical, really. Steady, not histrionic, not manipulative. I think her great downfall was that she wasn't manipulative. She was very straightforward and trusting. And she was a survivor. I mean, she did manage to keep herself. She did manage to become a established literary figure because... Another of the double standards, you know, she went after Percy had died, she came back to Britain a year later and with her one surviving child. And the family, the Shelley family, wanted to take the child, Percy Florence, away from her and bring him up themselves. That wasn't unusual. Obviously, Byron did the same about Allegra, his child, with Claire Clermont. But when she refused, she, and she refused quite rightly, saying, if I do that, people will people see it that I'm acknowledging that I'm not fit to bring up my child I'm not respectable she knew that she had you know she knew absolutely how things worked um, but they wouldn't then give her an allowance even though Percy Florence eventually became the heir after an elder brother died half brother but instead they loaned her an allowance so and it was only for Percy Florence so there was nothing to keep her and so she did things like she had to move to Harrow because she put him through Harrow school she couldn't afford for him to board she you know she had to send him as a day boy so so she was a really and in the 1840s when Sir Timothy Shelley finally dies and finally Percy inherits Percy Florence inherits Percy Florence is pretty useless he's obviously a sweet guy and obviously stuck around but he's absolutely hopeless he doesn't take responsibility for sorting out the finances sorting out the state which has lots of debts on it because of all obviously all the or Percy Percy Bish's debts on the estate it's Mary has to do all of it and why should she have found it more interesting than anybody else but the kind of the fecklessness of her son feckless in a different way from his father but feckless nevertheless and then Claire Clement who also inherits but is will do nothing but kind of write Mary whinging letters saying oh I don't trust you I don't trust you but I'm not taking your advice but I'm not coming over to London to get advice and sort it out myself you ought to sort it out but I don't trust you I mean you just feel that she was the she had integrity and she was the steady one and and she was therefore exploited by all around her yeah I mean there's that sense that obviously you know her husband done her wrong and yet she spends a lot of time curating his reputation her son's feckless, and yet she looks after him and then ends up kind of in the same, living at the end of her life, in the same house in which this husband was born. I mean, you know, she mm. she wasn't so radical as to get out from under no. Percy's... No, she wasn't radical. Do I you think, think she, I mean, do you think she loved him all the way through, or do you think she ever felt more ambivalent about what he'd, you know, his effect on her life? I think that once he died, she had to canonise him, because she'd lost everything for the sake of that relationship, really. I mean... Okay, she hadn't lost everything, but everything she had lost, she had lost for the sake of that relationship. And the cost had been so high. You know, I mean, really, the two children who died, maybe they would have died of other things if they hadn't gone to Europe and been carted around in hot summers and so on. But actually, they might well have lived if, you know, they'd just been settled, normal people in, you know, North London. And she wouldn't have been so ostracised, both by people beyond their circle and by people within their circle who, who once Percy died, revealed what they really thought of Mary, which was, on the one hand, she didn't count, she was just a poet's muse, and on the other hand, she was this kind of tedious nag who kept him at home and stopped his great genius from shining. Of course, that was the opposite of what she was doing. She was always fair, copying his work and sending it to publishers during their life together, not just after he died. So I think that she did... It's kind of good money after bad, isn't it, is the expression. You know, she'd invested so much that she had to then idolise him and believe it was a great person. Was that a love. psychological need, do you think? I think it was a psychological yeah. need. I think Mary was, a, was very rational, 
with a small R. And I think that she was intellectual. And I think that at a time when it's not so different now, but a time when women weren't expected or allowed really to be that. In that sense, she thought like a man. And I think that she paid a very high price for that because I think she did want to be a writer. It wasn't just pragmatic. She wanted to be. I've been, you know, to be something great and good as the precept my father set for me. She believed that she could be a great writer. And she could be. I mean, she was a major writer. But I think that she was nevertheless human. <laughs> and, you know, she, she found ways to, as they say, self-care but, my goodness, kind of in the eye of a storm. But she did. Well, Fiona Sampson, thank you very much indeed. Thanks very much, Sam.